Good morning, everyone. The basket wavers are waving at the back. (laughs) We are going to take up our offering as part of our worship. If you are here as a visitor, if you're not a follower of Jesus, please feel free to let the baskets go by. This is part of our worship um, and our commitment to what God is doing here. For those of us who are part of the church here, you're welcome to give, but don't feel any pressure to whatsoever. Just before I get going, can I say it's great to have Pete and Joe here. Pete and Joe West, why don't you guys stand up? Good to see you guys. Many of you will have no idea who Pete and Joe are, but they are good friends of ours as a church. They're part of our family of churches, and they are based in Lesotho in South Africa, the little um, kingdom of Lesotho, and they've been there for how many years now? Eleven? Nine. Nine years. And it's great to see you guys. They're here on a summer holiday. It'd be great just to get around these guys at the end, um, a number of us, and just to pray for them and the boys, um, just that they have a great time of refreshing and for God's favor in this season. And also, I just spotted Graham and Shirley. It's great to see you guys. Um, many of you will have no idea who Graham and Shirley are. And to be honest, I don't really know them either. They, they came to Gateway, was it 18 months ago now, two years ago? A year. My times are a bit out, as you can see. And um, they, came, they moved here from Eastbourne, felt that God was leading them here. And no sooner had they got here than they moved on to Israel. As they, um, a door opened for them to, to go and base themselves in Israel and just explore what God was doing. And I don't know if you guys are back or if you are, you're back. Welcome back. Look forward to getting to know you. So, um, so it's great to have you guys back. Welcome. <laughs> right. Um, I am going to get going. I realize that this is the summer holidays, and all of us like to do fun, summery, light-hearted things in the summer holidays. So this morning, we are going to talk about the light-hearted subject of spiritual warfare. Um, There is no holiday when you're at war. And the danger for us as followers of Jesus is when it comes to holiday seasons that we switch off, it's great to relax, it's great to rest, but we've just had a number of weeks off, and I found it a real battle to stay switched on spiritually, to stay tuned in to the promises of God, to to remember Jesus. And so actually, I, I hope that this morning is a bit like a trumpet call for us to say, Christian, we are at war. Let's not forget that. And let's just understand the dynamic of this kingdom that we are in. As we've been looking at over these last number of weeks, the, the stone that became a mountain, this, this kingdom that Jesus came announcing when he walked the earth. And we've been looking at what does it mean when Jesus is king and brings his kingdom to bear on earth, that it's good news for the poor, that it means that we are set free from sin, that people who are sick and ill are healed. What can be expected? And how do we carry on seeing his kingdom extend? And this is what we're doing over these couple of weeks over the summer. And in in Luke chapter 4, we've read this over the last number of weeks. When Jesus comes and he's at the synagogue, just after he's um, been baptized and the Spirit has come upon him, just after his temptation in the desert, after 40 days of um, just living in the wilderness, of just being in God's presence, tempted by Satan, Jesus comes to the synagogue and he, and he arrives on the Sabbath and he, it's his turn to, to stand up and read. 
And he takes a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. It was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You remember a number of weeks ago, Donna was just sharing the story of Burundi and just where things are at currently and all that's happening there. That's what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes is there's good news to the poor. It's why Peter and Joe are based in Lesotho, amongst some of the poorest people, because the kingdom of God comes and it pronounces good news to the poor. But not only those who are materially poor, but those who are spiritually poor also, of whom there are many. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, those who are enslaved to sin, those who are held captive to it, those who are like Pinocchio dancing to the strings. We're kind of like that mannequin doll and we dance to the, we dance to the, the um, strings. As they move, we find ourselves moving. We're, we're held captive, enslaved to sin. Our culture thinks that my freedom to do whatever I want with my body, with my money, with my mind, with my life. My freedom to do that is freedom. That's not freedom, that is slavery. True freedom is found in Christ Jesus and enjoying him and delighting in him forever and ever. That is what true freedom is. And Jesus came and said, I'm I'm coming to bring freedom to those who are enslaved to sin and don't even know it. He came to bring recovery of sight to the blind. That when the kingdom of God comes, we can expect people to be healed. We saw Jesus doing that, not only healing people, but raising people from the dead. When, when the kingdom of God comes, people are healed. And we need to expect more. Church, I want us to be a church that are hungry to pursue God. For people to be healed. For people to encounter the kingdom of God in power. And then we read in Luke 4 that Jesus came to set the oppressed free. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. He came to set the oppressed free. When God's kingdom comes, people are freed from spiritual oppression. Jesus sets people free who are under the power of the devil, Satan. When the kingdom of God comes, when Jesus came, He brought freedom to those who are under the power of Satan. If you are here and you are not a follower of Christ Jesus, you might not not like this truth. But the reality is that the Bible says that you are a slave to sin and Satan. When you come into faith in Christ Jesus, you are set free. You are liberated from those things. I'm going to pray and we're going to get to work. Father, thank you that you are a good and faithful God. Thank you that you are true. And we, this morning, just as we look at this really rather big and quite weighty subject, we pray that the eyes of our heart might be opened. Lord, that we would be those who do not fear that we have an enemy, who are not afraid that we are at war, but rather that we understand, that our minds understand, that our hearts are confident in who you are, that the battle is yours, that the victory is yours, King Jesus. And we pray this morning by your spirit, would you come and build us up in our faith? Would you come and strengthen us in our faith? Would you help us to understand the times and the days in which we live, that we might live as faithful followers of you, Christ Jesus? As we just pray that in this moment, your word would penetrate our hearts, that we would, be com- we would find our confidence again established in you, King Jesus. 
So pray that you would fill us afresh with your spirit. Pray that you come and open our hearts and our ears to your truth this morning. We pray this for your glory. We pray it because Jesus is what you came to do. You came to win us. You came to set us free from sin, Satan, sickness and death. And so we just, this morning, we we lift these moments to you and pray, Holy Spirit, help us to receive your word eagerly, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. So in a moment, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, which is a great passage. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, a great passage on spiritual warfare. We're going to go there in a minute. If you want to find it in your Bibles, that will be good. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul begins to talk about spiritual things. The fact that, in fact, we are at war. That there is a, a reality. Not, not only is there this seen creation, he's saying, no, there's an, also an unseen creation that's taking place. Just the same as when we were looking at Daniel a few months ago now, where Daniel is living out one reality. He's a resident in Babylon. And he's, and he's finding himself having to live faithfully in Babylon. But, but we're, so, we're also shown in the book of Daniel that there's another reality. There's an unseen reality that's taking place, an unseen creation where there are demonic forces at work, affecting individuals, affecting nations, affecting situations. And Paul here in Ephesians chapter 6, he's saying, yes, there are demons and a devil. There are angels and God. And he then says, and this is what your role should look like, Christian, in the midst of this spiritual battle. C.S. Lewis said this, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. There is no neutral ground. Christian, you are at war. You, you might not have known that until right now. But when you place your faith in Jesus... It's like a big target was printed on your shirt, on your back. And Satan and the demonic forces are out to get you. Not in a, but there is a reality that we are at war. And Paul, through his letter to the Ephesians, wants us to understand it. So he starts his letter to the Ephesians by saying, look, this is who God is, and this is what he has done in Christ Jesus. He has made you alive in Christ Jesus. You are seated in Christ in heavenly places. This is who you are. This is what he's done. And then, as is customary in Paul's letters, all of them, in the second half of his letter, he says, now in light of what Christ has done, live like this. And he comes at the end of this letter to say, by the way, it's not just a by the way, but there is a spiritual battle taking place. And if you want to live as faithful followers of Christ Jesus, you need to be aware that it's not just a case of of living like this, but that there is a battle for your faith taking place right now, today, even as you sit here. It might be a bit heavy, I know, for a Sunday morning in the middle of summer. But let's get going. In our Western culture, many people don't like to talk about the spiritual world. It seems foolish. In our civilized, culturally advanced, intellectually superior culture that we like to think we have, 
suddenly talk about invisible things, invisible forces that can't be seen or tested in a lab or smelt or touched seems rather childish and foolish way to think. You can't really seriously be a, a, a credible intellectual human being and believe in those kind of things, do you? To do so would be to be foolish in the eyes of our world, in the eyes of our culture, to believe in, to believe in demons and the demonic. Surely you don't believe in that. That would be kind of typical of our culture. This intellectual push on you can only know what's true if you can test it in a lab, if it can be proven. It's interesting, isn't it, that there are lots of things that we believe in that you can't test in a lab, that you can't see or touch. Love, morality, meaning, for example. You can't get those things in a lab and say, well, here they are, yet we base our life so much on those very things. We value them highly. So there's this intellectual push to say you can't be a, a, a rational human being and believe in things that you can't test in a lab. It's just, it's just folklore and fantasy. And yet there are also other people who at the same time, as is always the case, into things like the occult and new age. And in our culture we have this tension between the two of, of intellectual, you can't believe in that kind of thing, and then people who kind of get really into it and kind of go, but, but the occult and new age. And we, we're caught in this in this weird dynamic in our culture that takes place around spiritual things. But the Bible makes it clear that in fact there is a spiritual reality. There are spiritual forces of evil and wickedness at work right now. Uh, My story is that these, these things are real. I'm sure that many of you would say, do you know, being a Christian is hard work. When you said we're at war, I say amen to that. Following Jesus is like hard work. It's like we're on a battlefield. It's not just some easy, nice walk in the park. And even if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm sure that you just look at the events of the world and on the news and you kind of say there is some kind of evil taking place. But maybe the question isn't, is there just evil out there? But is there evil in here is a question that's worth thinking through. Let me just say, as we, as we press on into this, that many Christians are also prone to getting fixated on the subject of Satan and demons and the demonic. We can have an over-invested interest in them. We can, we can suddenly find ourselves wanting to know more. And do you know the Bible does talk about these things? Jesus engaged with Satan and demonic forces in his ministry And we're told certain things, but there's a lot we don't know. We're told what we need to know, but we're also only told so much. But we're told enough. Sometimes we're in danger of underplaying who Satan is and his power. He does have a power. And we find ourselves, I I hear this often, people kind of saying, oh, sneaky big boots is having an attack today. He might be. He's probably... Not Satan, it might be a demonic influence, but we kind of just turn him into this cartoon, pantomime-esque kind of character. Oh, the baddie, boo, but Jesus, hooray, but the baddie, boo. Satan is real and he is powerful. And the Bible tells us that he is walking around like a lion, prowling around, looking for followers of Jesus to devour. He is real and he is powerful. That does not mean 
that we need to get fearful of him. And we do not want to publicize or overemphasize who he is. We don't want to make a big deal of him. We don't want to talk about him too much and give him credit where credit isn't due to him. But we are to be aware and informed that we are in a battle, that we have an enemy, that he has tactics. We're to be aware of who our enemy is. But we are also to be aware of how we are to fight and that Jesus has overcome him. In John chapter 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. That, that lying is Satan's native tongue. And so as a deceiver, as one who lies, you would expect it's hard to spot the works that he does. The ways in which he tries to trap and snare people. Because, he is, because lying is his native tongue, you would expect it's hard to work out where Satan is at work at times. I don't know if you ever watched the film The Usual Suspects, but at the end of the film, Kevin Spacey comes out with this great line. He says, The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. I think he's done quite a good job of that. And yet, the Bible says he does. C.S. Lewis, in his book, In the Screwtape Letters, it's a great book. C.S. Lewis, is, he's just looking at um, spiritual forces of evil, demons and Satan, and, and kind of looking at the story from their perspective and, and how they try to pull this guy away from being a follower of Jesus. And it's a great read. If you've not read it, I really do encourage you to read it. But he said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an unhealthy and excessive interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist, sorry, materialist or magician with the same delight. We're not to be overly interested, but we're also not to be ignorant of the reality of this. And so in comes the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Ephesian church. And in this, he wants them to know how we are to fight as Christians, as followers of Jesus, living lives of faith. Not by rubbishing Satan, saying, oh, it's all just myth and fairy tale. But also not by shouting at him and getting all worked up either. So he wrote this letter to a church, much like us in Turkey, 2,000 years ago. And he instructed them about the Christian life. So if you want to read Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you, Christian, may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, stand Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, 
and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Amen. Paul believed in a spiritual world. I'm sure that many of us would say, do you know, my, my Christian story has been, yep, there definitely is a battle that is taking place. There is a fight that is going on. And right now in this room, I know because I know because I've been around the block enough, even in my young fair age, that there will be some in this room who are clinging on to faith, clinging on to Jesus by their fingernails. The number of times I, I talk to different ones and people say, I'm in this situation. And it, all we can do right now is just cling on to God. I don't even feel I've got the strength to do that, but I'm just clinging on to faith by my fingernails right now. And there'll be others in this room who say, do you know what, right now today, I feel the security as we were running earlier, that I run into Jesus, a strong tower, and I feel that protection and that security of him in my life. And within a church community like this, we have the both at all times. There is a reality to our spiritual lives. And in, in the New Testament, Paul, he, the Apostle Paul, he uses lots of images to describe the life of faith of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. One image he uses is that of an athlete pressing on to take hold of the goal to which we've been called. Training ourselves, being disciplined. Another image that he uses is, is that of being a, like a farmer, sowing the gospel of peace. Sowing this good news that we've received. Sowing your finances into the kingdom of heaven. Storing up for yourselves treasure in heaven as you do so. Hey, the fruit it doesn't necessarily get stored up in this life as we live lives of generosity. Preferring others, serving others, giving of our finances. But it stores up an eternal treasure in heaven, we're told. Bear, that we are to bear fruit like trees, fruit for God. Fruit, fruit that glorifies God. But now in Ephesians 6, he moves on to another image. And he says that you, Christian, you, Christ follower, are a soldier. You are a soldier. So you are at war and you are a soldier. Not a civilian. Not merely a bystander observing this war. But you are a soldier. Over five times in the New Testament we are told that we are soldiers. I don't know if you knew that. It's not just metaphorical. You are a soldier. We are told to fight the good fight of faith. So, there is a battle. But it's not the kind of battle that you're used to. It's not the kind of battle that's over territories between nations with bombs and bullets. It's not the kind of battle of cyber warfare. It's not a battle, we're told, against flesh and blood. We've just read that. Our battle isn't against people, human beings. Oftentimes, it can feel like it is, can't it? You fall out with your neighbor. You fall out with your friend. You fall out with your parent or your brother and sister. 
Your boss has got it in for you at work. And it can feel like our fight is against people at times. But we're told really clearly, our fight is not a fight against flesh and blood. It's so important that we just get hold of that in our, in our understanding and thinking as followers of Jesus. Especially when we're mistreated, persecuted for being faithful to Jesus Christ. Do you know what? Your fight isn't against flesh and blood. It's important that we know primarily our battle is not against people. We aren't always aware of the boundaries of this battle. And it's not a fight that we can see. And it's not a fight where our enemy plays fair. But it is important to know that we are at war. I hope that has gone in. I hope I've said it enough that we are at war. The Christian life isn't hard just because it's hard. Faithfulness to Jesus isn't hard just because it's some challenging things that he puts before us and says the Christian life looks like this. It's hard because you have an enemy who is vehemently opposed to you. He hates God and he hates you and he does all he can to destroy your faith. He hates faith. I told you this was a bit heavy for the middle of summer. And oftentimes, I don't know about you, but we can find ourselves being unsuspecting in this battle. Hey, we receive the good news of the gospel. and We, we love forgiveness and joy and hope that comes to us in Christ Jesus. We love those things. But then we can quickly find ourselves being neutralized by the enemy, ineffective in battle, ineffective in our walk of following Jesus. Because we don't realize that we're in a battle. We make some bad decisions. We do something foolish. Suddenly we're taken out of the battle. We find ourselves just being softened because, hey, you've got two weeks off. Sure, relax, go somewhere nice, switch off. Hey, you don't really need to bother with the Bible over these two weeks. God understand, it's all right. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. Just what you need is some you time. Oh, you, and, and by the way, oh, is that holiday over already? Make sure you put the next one in the diary because, gosh, you need some you time. Hey, there's nothing wrong with holidays. But boy, isn't it dangerous that soldiers in the midst of war think they're on holiday. That would be utterly foolish. And we can find ourselves with shipwrecked faith, softened Christians, unaware, unsuspecting of the enemy's attacks. Do you know, I think in our culture, in our churches, in my life, I think this is true, that 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 is a real weakness, is that we are just softened down. The enemy doesn't often do full frontal attacks. He does at times do full frontal attacks. He takes out marriages or there's seasons where it just feels in the church that marriage is under attack. Or there's prolonged periods of illness and sickness in churches. That happens. And we have to be aware that the enemy uses tactics like that to to shift our focus from Jesus. Hey, we're to stand in those moments on faith. But I wonder if the enemy's tactics in our age are to just put the comforts of the world in front of us. So you can have faith. Of course you can. But, But make sure that your life is comfortable. Make sure that your security is in your bank balance because although God is faithful to you, you better just make sure that you've got enough for a rainy day. 
Don't be too generous. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has conquered Satan for us. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he defeated Satan, sin, and death on our behalf. So Satan, he is real and he is powerful, but he is a defeated foe. He is a defeated enemy. He is a wounded enemy. He is dying, but he is not yet dead. He is not yet totally crushed. But the Bible says that there is a day that is coming when he will be crushed for all eternity. There is a day that's coming. It's a bit like in World War II when the Allied forces on D-Day, I've got to look at the dates, my World War II history is not that good, 6th of June 1944, the D-Day landings was the decisive moment many historians would say in World War II. And, they, they, and many historians would say it was that day, that one event, that when the, when the Allied forces landed on the beaches, that at that point the war was decided. It was, it was won at that moment. It was a fait accompli. It was done. It was that the, the, the enemy forces were defeated at that one day. Yet the battle still raged on for almost another year. Until the 8th of May 1945, when VE Day is celebrated. Historians would say, but it was actually D Day that won the battle. We find ourselves as Christians living in between that D-Day and V-E-Day type situation. Hey, Satan has been defeated on the cross. He's been disarmed, the Bible tells us. He was disarmed. Sin has been defeated on the cross. Yet we're still waiting for that decisive victory of Jesus. It was, de- it was decisive on the cross, sorry, but we're still waiting for Satan to be finally crushed when Jesus returns. We live in this dynamic of now, Jesus has defeated Satan, but yet we're waiting for Jesus to come and finally crush him for all eternity. But Satan is defeated. Just quickly, who is Satan? The Bible describes Satan as a liar, a murderer, an accuser, a tempter, a serpent, the evil one, an angel of light, a dragon, the devil, which comes from the word diabolos where we get our word diabolical. He's a prince of demons. He's a god of this present age, we're told. Satan, the word Satan means our adversary, enemy. He has a kingdom of fallen angels. We don't know much about when or where Satan fell. He was an angel that was created by God. And at some point he rebelled and led a rebellion of angels against God and fell from heaven and and, set, and then from that point on was in war with God and God's people. However, some good news. He is not equal with God. God is uncreated, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful. He is in all places at all times. He is always in control. His is the highest name. Jesus has the highest throne. Satan is not God's co-equal. I think our culture thinks that when it thinks about the Bible, it thinks a story of the Bible is that you have God on one side and Satan on the other and their horns are locked and there's this battle taking place that isn't yet decided. No, it was decided once and for all at the cross. And when Jesus was resurrected to eternal life in glory, then at that moment, the story went out, go and tell the world that Jesus has won. 
Go and tell the world that new life has begun. Go and tell them that the poor can now receive riches beyond measure. Not just riches of wealth, but to, be in, to inherit everything that is God is now theirs also. Go and tell those who are blind that sight has come. Go and tell those who are dead that new life has been given. Go and tell those that are captive to sin and Satan and slavery of all kinds that this is a day of freedom. He is not equal with God. He is a created being. He is not all-powerful or all-knowing. He is not in all places at all times. But as Christians, it is important that we know that we exist, that we live in this world, and we are surrounded by demons and demonic activity. And they are very interested in the affairs of human beings. But as Christians, we also have been given everything that we need to live lives of faithfulness and to withstand the attacks of the enemy. We've been given the mind of Christ. We are children of God, and therefore that means that the enemy cannot actually touch you. He cannot kill you, but he can try and deceive and lie to you. When in Genesis 3 we see that the enemy's, one of the primary tactics of the enemy is to lie. His first thing he did was he went to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he went and he said, did God really say? Did God really say? And he challenged the authority of God. I wonder... I know it's true in my life that that one of the ways that that the enemy seeks to undermine my faith, to get under and try and try and erode it, is say, did God really say? Did God really ask you that? Has God really got your best interests at heart? Or is he holding out goodness from you? It's it's all right if you you can just date and sleep around with whoever you want. Did God really say that that sex and marital fidelity, like you can't go there? as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus? Did God really demand that of you? And he just loves to undermine and erode our lives as Christians if we are not careful. In Jesus, we are given the confidence and the strength that we need to live lives as followers of Christ Jesus. That even when our faith is under fire, that we know that God is for us. That we know that he has given us everything that we need to stand. In Ephesians 6, as we've just read, Paul says that there are rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's hinting at there's, a, there's an order, a ranking of spiritual forces of wickedness. We don't know much more than that, but he's saying they're organized, they're intelligent, and they are out to destroy God and God's people as much as they are able to. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus tells us that the thief, the devil, he comes only to steal and destroy. Isn't it, isn't it just so wonderful when you think for a moment, these words that we've been singing and worshipping God with this morning. You are this, you are that, you are true, you are faithful, you're the Alpha and Omega, you're the one I run to. When we look at how wonderful are his works, that's why the psalmist says, how wonderful are your works, O oh God. And then we look at Satan, and, and they're, they're not co-equals. God and Satan are not co-equals. Jesus is greater. He is victor. 
He comes to steal and destroy. And he does this in different ways. The Bible tells us that, that those who aren't followers of Jesus, that they have been blinded. That, they, that he keeps their eyes from seeing the truth of God. Isn't it interesting that many people's testimony is that when they began to follow Jesus, that picture of receiving sight. Spirit, I was born again and I saw Jesus for the first time. I think that's true for many of us that we would say part of our experience of becoming a follower of Jesus is that I saw his beauty and majesty. Just off the back of our New Life courses, one of the um, women on the course, she wrote Emma and I this great letter of just her story of faith over the last year or so. And she said, I, I never understood how I could love someone who I couldn't see, but I love him. Eyes opened. Eyes opened. Peter, in his letter, warns the church, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, is like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. There's a a, a commentator on this book of Ephesians called Ernest Best. And in his commentary on this section, he says this. The devil's aim isn't primarily to get you to sin one more time or or to commit another act of lust or gossip. His primary aim is actually to destroy your Christian existence and testimony to God. His aim isn't primarily just to try and get you to sin one more time. He is out to destroy your faith. By the way, our battle as followers of Jesus with Satan lasts our whole lifetime. It doesn't stop. So when there's moments of a victory when you feel like, wow, that was a victory moment. Don't rest. There's another onslaught coming. <laughs> Sometimes that spiritual battle is overt and obvious. Persecution for being faithful to Jesus. Sometimes it's just in the everyday normal of life. Sometimes it's just the, ero- the slow erosion of faith. Sometimes it's Satan, he employs tactics just to erode your identity in Christ. Oh, I'm a rubbish follower of Jesus. I never, ever pray in the way I should. I don't, I, don't, I don't go to church enough. I'm not generous enough with my finance. I don't trust God enough. Oh, everybody else has got gifts, but not me. What am I good for? And he loves to use lies and just sow in lies into our thinking and begin to erode Faith. Everybody else has got a part to play in this body, but not me. Every, everyone else has got amazing stories of how God uses them, but not me. God's got a plan for everybody else's life, but, but not my life. If he can get you to believe lies like that, then he can neutralize your effectiveness as a follower of Christ Jesus. He loves to lie to you about your identity in Christ, which is why, why Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Such an important thing that we we remind each other of who we are in Christ. I'm just going to finish with this. Paul, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he encourages the church to forgive somebody who sinned against them as a church, to the Corinthian church. And he says, it's important for you guys to forgive so that you will not be outwitted by Satan. 
for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul warns warns the church, therefore, that it is possible to be ignorant of Satan's plans and purposes in your life. It's not enough to have all the theology lined up neatly, to have your right eschatology, pneumatology, whatever etology you want. It's not enough to have the right books, go to the right conferences. Instead, we are to know, as, as well as those things, the ways, the tactics that Satan employs to deceive and erode our faith. Can I just say that, that Satan and demons have observed us as human beings for a very long time, and they know what makes us tick. Men, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, money, sex, and power. Women, this was a bit harder, self-worth, significance, anger, jealousy, not that those things can't cross over at all. He knows how we're wired. He knows the buttons to press. And he'll go for where you're weak. Can I just say, the good news is that God loves our weakness. When we understand that, in fact, we are weak, is when we begin to become strong in Christ. If we think we're strong and we think, oh, I'm sorted, money, sex, and power, they're never going to get me, then suddenly you're on very dangerous ground. Listen to this. Finally, be strong in yourself. Make sure you're strong. Make sure that you pray all the time and that you're the mightiest Christian you know. Make sure that you're out giving pamphlets here, preaching the gospel there. Make sure that you're the most generous person in church. Make sure that you're the most spirit-filled, effective missionary with zeal, flying all over the place, taking nations for Jesus. Come on, everyone. No. (laughs) Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. When we're weak in ourselves, but we rest in Jesus and his strength and his mighty power, then we have victory. When we understand that that we don't go out railing against Satan, bashing him down, taking the nations for Jesus ourselves, that, that, that actually Jesus has done it all on the cross and we rest in his victory, that's a place of victory. It's a place of triumph. When we run to Jesus, when we're under fire, whether it's just our faith is under fire, whether it's circumstances you're facing and you say, I don't even know if I can go on anymore, but where else would I turn to? When we're in those places and we say, all I can do, Jesus, is run and shelter under your wing. That's triumph and victory in the Christian life. When you've messed up and you've sinned, and and maybe for some of you that could be quite spectacular messing up and quite spectacular sinning. You've shipwrecked your marriage and your second marriage and your third marriage and, and you've lost a load of money through business that went wrong and you, and you did a dodgy deal and you knew it and it came to bite you back and you started to hang out with the wrong people and they led you into all kinds of foolish, stupid living. Do you know what? God loves to get hold of people like that and say, I'm not after you to be strong. I'm not after you to be perfect. I'm after you to rest in me and my strength and my mighty power. He isn't, God doesn't need your bank balance, your intellect, your beauty, your Facebook popularity, the number of likes you get. They won't help you in this kind of fight. But Paul says, be strong in the Lord. 
Be strong in the Lord, Christian. Be strong in the Lord, just quickly. Put on the full armor of God. We're not going to look at that today. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the heavenly powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, when Satan and demons come and oppose you, and seek to rob faith from you, and you say, how does this situation, how does this sickness equate with Satan trying to rob faith from me, but he used everything and any means, any circumstance in your life to try and rob faith, to try and destroy your Christian testimony of faithfulness to Christ, that Jesus is Lord and Savior. He says, in that day, put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand again, keep standing, stand firm then. And he goes on to tell what this spiritual armor is like. Four times in three verses, we're told to stand, 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 stand. Not like we're used to as if you're here and you're British and you're good at standing in queues, waiting, waiting, just, I'm just waiting. Not that kind of standing, but standing like a soldier, dressed Ready for battle. Holding the line. Take your stand soldier. Hold the line. Don't fear. Don't give in. Keep that shield of faith held. Locked in to the, to the guy or the girl next to you. Locked into their shield. Ready to take the onslaught of the enemy. Ready to extinguish those lies that he comes and says to you. You're no good. God doesn't love you. If he loved you, he wouldn't have let that happen to you. Hold up that that sword of the word. Hold up the word of truth. As a church, we need to stand. This isn't just an individual thing. We are a body. We're a unit. Together. Soldiers together. And we need to stand together. Stand firm and strong in what Jesus has done. We need to stand with our shields locked together. We need to not give the enemy more credit than is needed. Therefore, don't allow gossiping, backbiting, infighting, jealousy. Don't allow the word of God to depart from us as a community. Because our faith will be shipwrecked. Don't let sin dwell in this body. If your brother is in sin, go to him in love. Help to restore him. Don't say, oh, I couldn't possibly challenge him on that. No, faith is at, faith is at risk here. Eternal destinies are at risk. We're to stand together, church. Stand in unity, watching out for one another. Especially when somebody is weak and under attack. Stand with them. Encourage them. Bear with them. Pray for them and with them. Confess sin to one another. I don't think we're so good at that in our kind of churches. The power of confessing sin to one another. What a great tool for breaking the power of sin. Speak truth to one another in love. Stand together pronouncing Christus victor. Jesus is victorious. There's that great scene in Gladiator when Maximus is in the Colosseum with his fellow slaves and they're ready for the onslaught of the gladiators to come at them. 
And he says to the slaves around him, whatever comes out of those gates, we have a better chance of survival if we work together. If we stay as a team, we stay alive. It's true for the Christian life. So true for the Christian life. If we work together, if we stand together, we can resist schemes of the enemy. We're not to be over the top about Satan. We're not to freak out that there's demons under every carpet, behind every curtain. We're not to go on a war path against him. Jesus is our model and our example for how we are to fight this spiritual battle. He wasn't intimidated by Satan. He didn't run from Satan. He didn't shout at him. Jesus didn't do weird, superstitious practices. Instead, he stood on the authority of being the son of God. He stood on truth so that when he was tempted, he stood on this, the word of God. John Piper, American preacher and um, author, he said this great quote. He said when he got his first Bible from his parents, in the front of their Bible he wrote, sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. We need to get dressed in our spiritual armor. I want to encourage you to go from here thinking about what that looks like. It's primarily about our thought, our thinking, and our conduct. What it is to be a follower of Jesus, and therefore how we live. We're to destroy the strongholds of the enemy in our life. We're to not let sin go unchecked. We're to take every thought captive. Not inventing conversations. Not playing conversations over in our heads of something somebody said to us that offended us. Over and over till it eats us up. Does you no good. Paul's goal for the church, his goal for gateway, for you, is at the end of the day. At the end of the day. When the battle is finally finished, when Jesus returns, that you are found standing in Christ on the word of truth. God loves integrity, faithfulness, honesty. Satan hates it. In 1 John. John 1, sorry. 1 John. We're told that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the evil one. Can I encourage you to stand? just going to break bread together and remember Christ's victory on the cross for us, that we've been set free from sin, death, Satan, that this trumpet call has gone out pronouncing good news to the poor, the day of freedom. And Jesus, we thank you that you went out, you chopped the head off Goliath when we couldn't do that. That was never our job. But now we're in this clean-up situation. And we thank you that you have called us to stand firm. And I pray for each one of us in here, whatever our situation, that we might be those who stand firm on your word of truth. 
who know our identity in you, who know that you are greater than he who is in the world, that you have the victory, that yours is the victory, that you have dealt the decisive blow, that even in your death upon a cross, when it looked like defeat, it was in fact victory. And you held up Satan and the demonic forces of evil and sin and made a spectacle of them, parading them for what they are, showing them as vanquished enemies. And that yours is the true victory, that you displayed that as you were glorified, even on a cross. And I pray that for us in this place, we would be those who, who, who in the day when faith is under fire, we run to you. That we dress ourselves in you, that we put on this armor, that we renew our thinking, that we live lives in accordance with the good news that, Jesus, you are victorious. And I pray that faith would grow in us. I pray that, I pray that faith, far from being robbed in us in these days, might be established all the more in these days. We pray this for your glory. We pray this for our joy. We pray this for the effective witness of your gospel here in Swindon in our lives. We pray it because it's the advance of your kingdom taking place as men and women are set free from the power of Satan. So just as we take this communion, we remember, Jesus, that you gave yourself even to death on a cross, that you gave your body and your blood for us as a sign of the new covenant. And we remember that. I just want to encourage you as you come to take communion just to reflect if there are areas of sin or maybe habitual sin where you just say, I can't, I just can't get control of that. Yes, you can. Christ has set you free. Run to him. Run to his grace afresh today. Resist the devil and the Bible tells you that he will flee from you. So I bless you this morning in the name of Jesus. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe this morning will be the first time you share communion. To say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be set free from the power of sin and Satan and come into life of Christ for the first time. We'd love to share communion with you. Let's just sing a song, share communion, and then please parents, go and collect your kids from their groups. Thank you guys.